Okay, let's get into it. Sheepdogs. Sheepdog podcast. Welcome back to episode part two of Leisure, the Basis of Culture. We brought back one of our favorite guests, Peter Burley, uh, here to share more about the book. We only got not even halfway through talking about the book in last podcast, and it was one of our longest episodes. Does that mean we're lazy with leisure? Ooh. What do you think, Peter? I've got no idea. <laughs> we're working our way. I think we're just working through leisure. Oh, nice Some, pun, Father. Sorry, too much. <laughs> father with the dad jokes. Uh, yeah, so. I'm tired of this. <laughs> no, I'm actually super excited. Yeah, it was great discussion last time, and hopefully we can continually just unpack what Peter has to share, because certainly a topic that's needed in our world today, and I know in my own life, trying to slow down and, yeah, remember what's most important. So excited to dive back in. Oh, yeah. Great to have you here, Peter. And uh, Michael can't be with us. He's studying for an exam today. But we were, him and I were just talking this past week of learning from what Peter taught us. Like, yeah, going to class without headphones in is a whole different ballgame. So we were already implementing stuff from last week. So I'm just excited for this week, what more we're going to learn. So uh, awesome. before, yeah, Peter can introduce the topic again. Father, could you lead us in an opening prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for, uh, yeah, your humanness. Lord, that you too took time to rest and uh, to experience our world. May we continually know your grace and know your presence among us each and every moment. Just be aware of God's great love for us. And may we grow in wisdom and understanding uh, at this time too, as we enter into this podcast. And we ask Holy Spirit, to be present to us, and we ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Sweet. Well, yeah, Peter, could you just reintroduce this topic for us? Anyone who maybe, I don't know why you'd not listen to part one, but say they didn't, uh, and kind of where we left off uh, in the last episode. In the last episode, we discussed Peeper's conception of leisure and of work. We talked about living in today's impoverished world, a world that has reservations about community and lives with technology as a large part of our lives. When we began to walk through Peeper's work, we hit this odd section about discursive thought and Kant, a German Enlightenment thinker. It's a seemingly random beginning. Why not talk about something to which everyone can relate? Uh, why does Pieper begin where he does? He starts at the top at thinking to show that our work mentality has actually flooded our entire lives. It's not just physical labor that we consider in terms of struggle, but it's the now mental labor that we think we have to do just to understand something. And Pieper proffers the insight of the medieval tradition, namely that there's a difference between ratio and intellectus. Ratio, we said, is the discursive process of puzzling something out, and intellectus is the contemplative passive receptivity. We, we use our minds in the mode of ratio when we do a geometric proof 
right? We're trying to bring this and that together to come to this conclusion. And if it doesn't work, we substitute in that. And we do intellect us in the, in the moments when we're wondering about our lives. Maybe we're reflecting on a book. Maybe we're in prayer. Maybe we're just walking around and seeing what's what. Pieper wants to highlight this in part because he's a Thomist. And so he believes that that's a real distinction that you have to make between ratio and intellectus. And in part because he's worried about Kant's success in our world today. We've all heard people asking whether the world is real, whether I'm actually living in the matrix, whether I'm just a mind inhabiting a body. We make a mistake today of thinking that we have a body as something that we possess, sort of like I possess my phone or my car or my couch. We think that we have a body instead of actually being our body. We're dubious about our world, about our bodies, and about knowing anything because we think that we can't actually take it for granted. We think that we have to have a proof for everything from the ground up. We've got to have all these kinds of reasons. And if we don't have good enough reasons, well, then we shouldn't really believe it. And so it makes us very, uh, I would say, anxiety-driven. We're dubious about simple answers, about anything that's inspired, anything that needs the phrase, it just is, or I just know. We're, skepti we're skeptical of things that are too simple. We like the, the intricate and detailed presentation of a businessman because it seems super thorough, and we feel shorted when he doesn't have an answer to everything. And of course, businessmen try to have an answer to everything because it makes them seem thorough. It makes them seem like they know what they're talking about. The problem with having an answer to everything, though, is it means that you've apparently exhausted all there is to know about the topic and about the world. And so consequently, nothing is mysterious anymore. Nothing is inspired. Nothing just comes to you. Nothing is given. Pieper sees that as a problem, and so he wants to attack our conceptions of work at their highest point, at our thinking, to show that work should get a much more limited range than it currently occupies. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, metaphysics, right? That idea, you know, I think of like the beauty of a flower or something like that, and some people could just break all that down and say, well, it's really just the science of it trying to appear, you know, appeal to bees or whatever to continue on you know and make more flowers or people just think in such a scientific way that they write off that like beauty is actually uh something deeper that we can't fully explain but that is so true with every human heart and i think that's yeah one way what i could understand what you're talking about i think uh that reminds me of what we said in the last episode that peeper isn't opposed to to thought per se so there's nothing wrong with with taking some time to puzzle out something, but we don't want to think that it's our simply thinking hard about it that makes it to be what it is. Mm -hmm. But there's even the opposite of doing that where we dumb everything down, we oversimplify it. And we think that uh, whatever a thing is, is fairly obvious. So we can do that in a material sense. Well, I'm basically just uh, a flesh bag of chemicals on a giant rock hurling through space. Uh, Maybe that's a way to see ourselves, but I think there's a little bit more to us than just being a flesh bag. And I think that there's something more to, you know, my, my affections and my interests than simply being a chemical reaction. That, that's a lot, of, uh, a lot of what the scientific world would amount to uh, a lot of times. And then we can also do that mathematically, right, where we only think that we can know something insofar as we can measure it. 
-hmm. We definitely see that today. Well, how would I, how could I test that? If I can't test it, it's not real. Um, We think that with a lot of ideas, that ideas aren't really real unless it has some kind of a a physical empirical aspect to it. Mm -hmm. So I think the question at the end of the day we have to ask is, uh, number one, how does this match with my experience? Uh, Do I really see myself that way? Do I see the world that way where I have to think through everything? Um, And then also, does that get at the full depth of what it is in its spiritual aspect too? Have I truly exhausted what it is? And then one step back, can I even exhaust what a thing is in a given moment? Does my mind have that capacity? All kinds of questions to be asking. Hmm. It makes me think of, I heard like sometimes people struggle with like receiving gifts. Like they can't really receive. They just, they always have to be giving back. Is it kind of like that in a way for like thought in your mind? Like you don't know how to receive what's around you because you're so always busy, like putting forth effort or giving it to someone else. I think it's something like that. There's nothing wrong with the gift per se. And there's nothing wrong with their intention. But if you're a suspicious person, or you're a person who works all the time, you're constantly going to be thinking of, well, what do they really think? What are their real intentions? And then you can actually start to presume, well, I know based on the way that they're standing, that they're this kind of a person, or the way that they're dressed, or the way that they, you know, their voice had this inflection when they gave it to me. I know they really don't mean it. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, or I know that cost them a lot of money, or that didn't cost them any kind of money. They got it on some kind of a sale. This is a cheap present. Um, but that totally doesn't regard the reality that somebody has made an effort to give you something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if they're a loving person, presumably they're not doing it to get something out of you. They're doing it because they like you and they want to show that they like you. So yeah, maybe there was a sale at the store and they thought it'd be a good idea, but you know, take it as it is. The person gave you something. Mm-hmm. So returning to the theme of intellectual worker, that was something that we got at the beginning of part two of Pieper. He uses that term in a different sense. Uh, He laments the fact that school and academic pursuits, so why we go to universities, why we go to high schools in the first place, he laments the fact that all that we think is strictly functional. Uh, For him, it's a shame that we see teachers as parts of a social machine. Uh, We agree, certainly, that professors have earned their kudos and they're specialists in their field, but they have to be useful. They have to be useful to the university and what the university is doing. They're treated more so as functionaries. They're expected to have some kind of an output. So think, how many college websites have something in their mission statement about making students, quote, leaders? Uh, There's nothing wrong with that per se, but it's very important to life and the life of study that there's something, we, we almost want to use the word useless about it. The most popular to d- disciplines today are what? They're engineering, business, econ, uh, nursing, and law, all things that have some explicit practical application. There's nothing useless about, about that. I'm going to make me some money. And this trend of useful disciplines is actually contrary to the origin of the university system. The whole point of universities when they arose in the Middle Ages was that you were studying things specifically because it's good to study them. The use part was actually secondary. Yes, it might be useful, but, but even before then, it's simply good to know it. And so the primary reason for going to school was 
because you wanted to know just to know because knowledge is good for its own sake, we would say. It's not that I should study literature, politics, or philosophy and theology because they're going to make a lot of money. They may end up being useful in the final estimation, but we don't study them to make money. That actually cheapens what it is. We study them because they make our lives meaningful and rich and beautiful and deep. It's important in a certain sense that we're wasting time on something good in itself that doesn't actually need any further justification for studying it. Why am I studying this? Because it's good. That's the end of the story. And so uh, when, when you tell someone that you're studying philosophy, frequently you get an, oh, that sort of indicates it's not going to do much. Uh, and, and sometimes people are less subtle. They say, well, what are you going to do with that? And uh, in that case, I usually reply that a person should study philosophy because it teaches you how to think. And then when you put it that way, people usually agree pretty quickly that, yeah, the world could use some more thinking people, I, you know, this or that person I was dealing and you know, it goes on and on. Uh, but prior to that, it's an important question. Why pursue wisdom? Because wisdom is good and it's, it's proper for me as a person with a mind to have wisdom. The university system today is largely built around the premise so, so we don't have that today, at least not in the forefront of our minds about why we're going to school, what I should be learning, what kind of classes I should take. Universities today, the primary purpose is to get you to learn more things so that you can be of greater use. You learn because it'll make you money, so it serves you. And so you can help a business grow its revenue so that you can have a successful career. So you're, you're agreeing to a mutual use, which is fine. But you do that to make the world better in some vague sense. Better is never really defined in the modern world. We just kind of look forward and say, yeah, it's different than what it is. So it must be better in some way. <laughs> that has little to do with pursuing legitimate goods that tie us back to God. And if I can plug, that's why liberal arts universities like the University of Dallas has become significant. People are tired of paying big money to become a more powerful tool. They want to have knowledge and to live the good life. So returning to the broader point, people rejects the idea that we can find our satisfaction in a workaday existence, the world in which we use our breaks to recover from work so that we can just get back to work. And he thinks that we have to return to a world that breaks the circle of considering things in terms of utility and emerges into the field of things being the Latin phrase traditionally is bonum in se, good in themselves. Mm. That's so good. When you were talking about that, that need for, yeah, it's being able to study, uh, yeah, to grow in wisdom. I began to think of just yesterday, I was speaking with my parents and, you know, they're retired now, but even them, they're very busy. And so they just had to get away for similarly carefree timelessness right and just that idea of like if you want to fall in love you just need that carefree timelessness to encounter another person and so similarly like to encounter the wisdom of god or the wisdom of the world uh yeah you just i think we need that time to encounter the greater things and so that means putting aside some of those work a day uh whatever be in the cog in the machine a little bit <laughs> to encounter the higher things and it does seem much to us like yeah, wasting time a lot of the times because we don't have the production aspect. Um, but yeah, it's the importance of, yeah, I, I know I can see that in my own life too, just developing friendships or those kind of things, how we just need to have that time 
or yeah, dedicated to wisdom or even yesterday I was realizing my own life too, just the idea of I need time to think. So I had like some scheduled thinking time yesterday and how helpful that was for life and for the work that I do. Because sometimes when you're just like doing the work, doing the work, it's, uh, yeah, you can just forget what are the big important things in life and the reality there. So I definitely understand. I uh, can see the value in that. Although, yeah, when we first look at it sometimes, it's uh, in the midst of our world, it could be, we could question ourselves. I think uh, the, the image of loving someone is a really good one. Could you imagine like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love someone and I'm going to do it very efficiently. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite them on a date and uh, we're going to go there and I'm going to have a sheet of paper. And in one column, they'll write what they're interested in. The other column, I'll write what I'm interested in. And we'll spend just 30 minutes because really you don't need that much more. This shouldn't take that Like You could stretch the whole thing out. That'd be so weird, right? If somebody sat you down and did that, you'd be like, this date is over. Thank you. I appreciate it. But this is so weird. So you can try and, you know, throttle the goods for all their worth, right? Take, take philosophy and theology and politics and literature and psychology and just absolutely choke them out. And, you know, I will use it for this purpose, but that totally ignores why we even have the field in the first place. The reason why we have psychology is to know what the mind is like. And the mind is in the context of the body too. So it's one aspect, one aspect of that. And then philosophy to, to figure out the proper way to use our mind uh, in light of its limitations and its abilities. And then theology is, well, let's see how far the mind can go uh, in knowing God at first. Uh, and then, you know, getting into faith as well. Um, how much can I know that God knows? Uh, we don't really have that kind of a schema in the modern world today. It's just, well, which classes do I want to take based on the job that I think I might be interested in? And uh, if I can't get that job, then I guess maybe I'll change a couple of classes or I'll just walk around with a college degree that I paid a lot of money for, but I didn't really go to class for. You know, it, it just ends up being this uh, discombobulated and disjoint enterprise. Peter, I kind of want to ask a question. You said it's important that we're like wasting time, quote unquote, on something that's good in itself that needs no further justification for studying it. I think that's just a concept that's not talked about a lot these days. And I understood what you meant when you said, quote unquote, wasting time. But even that, I feel, gets into this topic of how I view time and how I value it and almost how I don't see leisure as something that's worth my time, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could you like flesh that out a little bit more? Yeah. The phrase wasting time became very important when uh, I, I was in Rome for a semester, my sophomore year of college. And a professor said that he said, like, you as college students are in Rome. It costs a lot of money to get here. It's costing a lot of money to keep the lights on. Um, you know, we're, we're, for better or for worse, the UD program is there for like four months. And I think it's after month three that you're obligated to go get your fingerprints done for the government. And so every semester without fail, every single one of the students has to go over and get their fingerprints done at an official government building. Okay, so that takes a lot of effort. And you know, this whole thing, and the professor just said like, you guys are useless, right? You're, you're not really contributing to society. But he said, it's so important that you are useless because if you're constantly having to work while you study, there's something about your studying that is going to be inhibited. Now, 
obviously some people have to work while they study and some people are really able to manage it. But everybody knows somebody who says, oh, I don't even have enough time to read because I have to go to work. Or, oh, it's nine o'clock and I just got off my shift as a waiter or a waitress. I've got to go read now. I can't go to a party or something like that. It doesn't really enable you to take in the things that you're trying to understand. You don't have the, to use a metaphor, you don't have the mental space to breathe if you're constantly overwhelmed by work. So in a certain sense, it's really important that up to a certain age, kids are utterly useless, that they're not being used for something else, that they just have a space to kind of intellectually graze, if you will, or to make friends without a whole lot of pressure to, what are you doing for the community? Huh? Or, or, have you been an activist today? Um, <laughs> we, we get that world today. What are you doing for everybody? Uh, are you buying, you know, this or that thing? Where are you putting your dollars? Um, in a certain sense, we just got to have a space to be. So it's important that we're useless. Now, not utterly useless, right? You can't just like lay down and, you know, <laughs> throw your money away at everything. We get, we get that kind of a culture where, uh, you know, even your groceries, you don't go out for those. You have them ordered to you for, you know, a subscription fee, right? That's just ridiculous. Go out and get your groceries. But like a healthy sense of useless where you're wasting your time on the good kinds of things to go back to father's point like you would as if you're dating. You're wasting on something that's really worthwhile. Mm -hmm. To tell the difference is difficult. But right, right. So, yeah. So we got to clarify that. Well, I guess it just makes it clear, but the idea of, right, not wasting time, like 24 hours straight on video games is not what we're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like investing- Not a legitimate what, good. <laughs> what am I given to, yes, times is read the classics or these things that are going to enrich our lives and help us to uh, expand us to understand the world around us and understand God and who we are and be college is such a great time too to be exposed to so many different ways of thinking and how people got there especially philosophy too right to understand um, of course you have to view that through a, a lens that sets you straight right which we have in the church but just the fruitfulness from ex being exposed to so many yeah, so many other uh, categories so attention all you sheepdogs this is your gold card to call into work and say, no, no, I can't. I'm wasting time. It's good for me. <laughs> this is your opportunity to grab all that Mountain Dew that you've been hiding, all that beer, <laughs> and to sit down for the longest movie marathon you can possibly come up with. You need the Bourne series. You need Lord of the Rings. You need yeah. every Marvel movie you can think of. Grab those Funyuns. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, use, it, it is interesting hearing you use the term useless and how your professor said it, because something about it does seem off, but useless in the sense of you're, it's almost to look at it kind of as a privilege, like you're given this time to study Absolutely, is, is a good way to look at it, I think. It is a privilege to be useless. Uh, that's kind of paradoxical. But yeah, only certain people have the space and the resources to be devoted not to doing and producing and outputting, but to understanding and knowing and trying to get a feel for what's going on in the world. It's definitely a privilege. Yeah, and I think one way you could look at it too, just with that discussion of time, is like investing in things that are timeless. You know, just mm. these eternal things like, okay. Eventually time, you know, we think of running out of time, but really time is gonna run out on us and we want to have invested in those things that are just eternal in the end, so. Mm -hmm. yeah focus on those is cool oh they're bringing that eternal perspective oh, 
<laughs> gotta remind myself all the time yeah <laughs> we all need a reminder yeah so moving into section three of leisure people peeper starts to get a little bit more concrete about what his purpose is in talking about this whole thing he introduces the topic in section one talking about the phrase intellectual worker in section two and then begins three by saying that the worker as we generally think of them today is characterized by three traits the first one he says is tension of the powers of action number two he says is the readiness to suffer in vacuo little little stark and number three is the complete absorption into a rationally planned and utilitarian social organism so the first one tension of the powers of action by that he means that workers are weighed down in their work life their desire to be free and alive is in tension with the need to slave away at a job that they hate. Their powers are in tension. The modern worker has also become very gloomy and compliant and disposable. And then by readiness to suffer in vacuo, in a vacuum, he means the, the willingness to just roll over and die at work, to stay that extra shift without complaining because it's your work and that's what you've gotten used to. Maybe you would have complained when you first started, but now you've gotten so used to it that you have no resistance. And it really doesn't mean anything to you. You're not striving for a goal. They just say, hey, can you stay another hour? We need you to close. All right, well, may as well. It's that kind of a lifeless world that he's talking about and that he's worried about. Internet dropped out here, but Peter is saying this is where acedia starts to slip in. Catholics, acedia or achedia is synonymous with uh, sloth, a state of inactivity. It's important to know about acedia though, it's not defined simply by a kind of stasis, by a lack of doing something. Characterizing it simply as a vacuum isn't quite accurate. Acedia is most properly understood with its motivation. You despair of the life to which God calls you because of its height. Mm -hmm. In the Gospel of Matthew, Christ makes the command Pretty plainly, be ye therefore perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. John Paul II notes that this is an updated version of the command given by God in Leviticus, you shall be holy as I am holy. So not holy in the sense of you shall be, sorry, he moves from uh, you shall be holy good into uh, actually you're going to be perfect. There's actually no room at all for imperfection. So that's a very high call to have, and Christ raises the bar for us. And acedia arises when the height of the calling is a source of despair. We're not equipped. We feel unworthy. It's going to cost everything, whatever the reason. Acedia, Peeper says, is sorrow at the divine goodness imminent within us. God's life present within us is not a source of joy, but actually a cause of sadness. That's interesting you bring that up because we had a Bible study last night and we were just talking with some of the guys. So sometimes we can look at the saints and actually get discouraged because of these crazy lives they live. And I was asked a priest one time about it and he told me, don't look at the saints for imitation, look at them for inspiration. Because sometimes you can look at them for imitation and think of how terribly you are compared to them. And obviously the devil can creep in there, but this concept of acedia is very interesting. Yeah, I'm, I, that makes me think of, uh, was it St. Teresa of Lisieux, Story of a Soul? 
one of the questions that is just dogging her the entire time is how come I'm not called to be a great saint like everyone else? I'm just a little girl. I don't have the capacity. Meanwhile, everybody's daughter today is named Therese, right? It's, it's so ironic that, you know, she, she can't see the use that she has because she sees that, you know, the, the goodness and the glory are in other people. And it looks, um, it's louder, so to speak. Uh, but we can all do quiet but very good things and feel, uh, in a certain sense, a very important, uh, well, no, not in a certain sense. Yeah, just a very important role the quiet life can be very important and God calls different people to different degrees of holiness, but uh, that's for his purposes. Maybe you could give us an insight into a CD. I know sometimes we could become so distracted by our weaknesses that we forget just God's love for us or all the good things that are going on. And even if, you know, we're the top of our game, maybe even if we are doing great or whether we're not either way, people could be totally distracted by our weaknesses. Right. And so, how can we focus on uh, those good things, that high call from the Lord, realizing he does it? Um, do you have any insights into that? Well, uh, <laughs> it's a beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was actually thinking last night, um, there, there was a bunch of laundry that needed to be folded, and I just decided, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to fold all this laundry before bed. And then I thought, wow, this is this is work. This is a lot of work that I don't really want to do at the end of the day. And then I thought of a couple of people that I admire and I thought, wow, I'm, I'm trying to behave like them. I'm trying to have a work ethic like they do. And I kind of thought, you know, Peter, at a certain point, you're going to be burning yourself out because you're not them, right? In striving to be like them, I, don't, I won't actually able to be like them because they're the best of the best. And I'm just frankly not like them. Um, so I shouldn't be scandalized by the fact that I have limitations that are unique to me. And I shouldn't think that to be the best version of me is to be someone else, right? To, to be the best version of me is to work within my limitations, to work with my gifts and my skills. So it's easy if you're, if you're listening to a podcast like this, or you're, you're being around people who you think are really awesome and they're super holy or they're super smart, or they're super athletic to look at that and to despair and to say, well, I'm, I'm just not like that. There's so much in me that's lacking. But I think of uh, Benedict XVI's quote, I don't remember it exactly, but each of us is willed, each of us is necessary. Mm. Uh, Father Gregory Pine puts it well, there's a, there's a voice in the heavenly choir that only you can fill. Mm. Um, so while we may not be the greatest and the best out there, uh, it is a temptation to think that, that I have to be the best if I'm gonna be worth something right? What a lie. Uh, there is a temptation to think that because I'm not the best, that I'm really not worth anything. Uh, but I think that's just contrary to what the gospel has to say. Uh, Christ didn't say, I came to get all the people who are at the top of their game. So let's form a line. Let's get some tests going. And at the end of this, I'll, I'll uh, sweep off the top five. You know what? Make it six, just because I'm feeling nice today. Um, it wasn't like that. It's, it's a giant sweeping motion of everybody who's poor and the more poor you are, the more you get, if you're willing to, to humble yourself and to accept it. So yeah, just thinking of ourselves purely in terms of the best, sort of taking a poll and then looking around and saying, where do I fit into the category? That's fine, but you can't forget who you are and what your purpose is and what God's calling is for you. Because the reality is that you, if you're, if you're living a holy life and you're trying to do your best, are actually going to have a word for somebody else 
which will actually change their life. So you may not be on stages. You may not be, um, you know, the athlete who has John 316 tattooed on his arm and everybody sees that, looks that up and oh my gosh, you may not be that, but God certainly has a plan for you. And it's up to you and him to figure out what that is. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's what? so encouraging. That was, yeah, that was really good. So encouraging. Yeah, because I think often, like you're saying, pretty much, I mean, we see these other people who we want to be like, which is good, you know, to learn so much from the saints or other people we admire, you know, whoever it is. Uh, but you got to realize, like, okay, I could garner something from that. I could be inspired. But also, who is God calling me to be? And who am I called to be in the world and living that out? Uh, yeah, it's such a great point. And mm-hmm. it's interesting, Peter, that people are saying that the state of work now actually leads you into acedia. So mm-hmm. I guess, like, how do we get out of this state of acedia? How can we reverse this kind of state that we're in? I'm glad you asked that because that leads me into the very next point. <laughs> <laughs> Peeper's kind of trickling this out, so uh, it, it's good to jump from one thing to the next. Uh, so in, in a kind of lifeless world, it, it's natural for a CIA to creep in. Uh, we said that it's synonymous with sloth in part, but, you know, we got to look at the motivation too. The opposite of a CDA is not finding a job and then putting yourself out there into a practical action, uh, shaking yourself out of whatever state you worked yourself into, uh, the opposite is not hyping yourself up with Jordan Peterson or Gary Vee or Metallica, right? Nothing <laughs> like that. Because that's all temporary, right? That's just hot air into a balloon. At some point, it's going to fade out. Because acedia is a movement of the heart downward, the opposite is a movement of the heart upward. Acedia has to be untangled by cheerfully affirming the world God has made a world with you in it and a place that you have to fill with love. So cheerful affirmation is a phrase that we want to keep in mind. That's one that people uses a few times. Acedia, just for another minute on that, is actually the refusal of your own existence. It's refusal of your being. The refusal to consent to the divine life that made you and the divine life that wants goodness for you. So the notion of cheerful affirmation is absolutely essential to the life of leisure. In fact, leisure is the opposite of acedia. We have to get our concept straight on what Peeper means by that, though. Leisure is the opposite of acedia, but leisure is not what you have when you have nothing else to do. It's not defined negatively as in not work. It's not as though, well, there's my work over here and there's my not work over there. Whatever is not work, I'm going to call restorative leisure. Uh, Not quite. Leisure can be found in that downtime, but leisure isn't simply non-work time. It doesn't fit into that slot precisely. You can be on vacation doing leisurely things and biking and all that, but not actually having authentic leisure. It's a form of silence, of being present and unified and connected to God. So you yourself are whole interiorly and you feel present to yourself as you're moving about the world and you're connected to God. And when we don't have leisure, we don't see straight and we don't think straight. We're agitated and we're impulsive and we're weak and we're hollow inside, right? We try to go into our inner room 
and we find out that it's vacant, it's a bunch of gray walls, our life can lack that cheerful affirmation that enables us to see with God's eyes. It's only when we have leisure, Pieper says, kind of confusing, that we can truly apprehend reality. So if we're always seeing everything in terms of work, in terms of utility, in terms of, you know, whatever funk I've worked myself into, we're not actually seeing it in the proper way. We're seeing it with a different kind of lens. Because if you took your glasses and put a bunch of gray over it, maybe sharpied over it, everything you're going to see is going to be a little bit different. And you can't take in the full color, the shapes as they are. Only when we have a receptive attitude of mind, only when we consent to and cooperate with reality, can we answer a yes to that reality. And this is vague and somewhat difficult to pinpoint, but it's incredibly, it's an incredibly crucial insight. Peeper's leisure is an attitude of openness to the world that's infused with God. So leisure is interior unity and also connectedness with God, the creator. And I want to read, uh, if anybody you know, goes out and gets the book, it's on page 48 of you know, whatever the standard copy is up there. On 48, a little bit over halfway to the bottom, he says, leisure is possible only on the premise that man consents to his own true nature and abides in Concord with the meaning of the universe. Whereas idleness, as we have said, is the refusal of such consent. That's a sikya. Leisure draws its vitality from affirmation. It is not the same as non-activity, nor is it identical with tranquility. It is not even the same as inward tranquility. Rather, it's like the tranquil silence of lovers, which draws its strength from concord. So it's not... Uh, feeling good about yourself, not waking up in the morning and saying, boy, am I awesome. Boy, am I just, you know, the best thing ever. Um, that does lend itself to some kind of unity, but even that is not rooted in God. I think affirmation is a, is a difficult word to, to place, but I think it's the most uh, appropriate word for what he's trying to describe. When you affirm something, you're affirming something that already is or something that somebody's put out. Maybe it's a statement, maybe it's an idea. In this case, he's talking about the world. The world as it is needs our affirmation if we are going to get along in the world. So if we don't agree to the reality that God has, the reality that God has made, and we find ourselves in opposition to it, or we we don't want any part of it because we have some kind of a problem, then we're actually not able to live truly. So for, for people, leisure is not uh, spiritual realism. We want to make that part clear. It's not begrudging consent to the fact that reality is harsh and God made it that way, right? It's not this kind of, here's how it is and you have to agree. It's actually much more lovely than that. Yes, God made the world and it's in a certain way and we can't get away from that. But that ought not be a source of trouble for us because God made the world for us. So leisure recognizes the presence of God within his creation. God made the world and he is present 
at all times and in all places. Thus, leisure isn't limited to the beach or the lake or the mountains or wherever our ideal place is where we go away from work. Leisure it becomes possible at all times and in all places. Whether you are at work, on, if you're on a road trip, in the hospital, even in a prison, if you're around a campfire, if you're cooking dinner, if you're on your way to get ice cream, putting on your shoes, pouring your coffee, in all of those instances, right, daily life, unusual life, whatever, you can, you can have leisure. We can always affirm and give our yes to God's life. Wow. So leisure, even now, even though you've gone through all this, this information in the book, leisure in my mind, I still think of a dude in a hammock chilling on a beach. <laughs> and what you're saying is people are saying that's completely not the case. It's actually almost a way of being that everything you do can be leisure. So what's maybe a better image to think of? Or yeah, how can we be leisurely in, in all that we do? Even though it's, it's not slothfulness, it's not laziness. Mm -hmm. It's, it's leisure. Yeah. So about the, the guy in the beach in the hammock, um, that could be leisure. But it's not leisure because of the circumstances. It's leisure because of your disposition. Certain things do dispose us in a certain way, right? Having a cocktail does dispose you to have a more leisurely time. That's why it's such an important aspect of community because it relaxes people. It opens them up It softens them after the end of a long day. So certain things kind of where we are and in a certain time that we're in could dispose us more towards leisure, but we shouldn't think that it's formulaic okay, I need to be in my hammock and the sun needs to be overhead at this time because when it's overhead, then I have the ideal shade. And if I have the ideal shade, then I'll be most relaxed in my temperature, yada, yada, yada. And then I need to be reading this book and this is the best section. We shouldn't treat it as formulaic where I just need to get out of here. I just need to go do this. Because you could set the scene perfectly, but if your heart isn't there, what is it worth? Leisure is about an interior disposition. So certain things do conduce towards that, but you can still have leisure not with that. Um, so then the question is, okay, what's the, what's the best kind of leisure image that we have? If, if that kind of thing is associated with laziness, um, with you know, sitting on a beach all day for a week, what's a better image? Uh, for college kids, I would say it's something like... Um, I had a, <laughs> what was it called? They, I can't remember what the name was. It was a really witty name. I had a bunch of friends who would get together and read Plato together with cocktails. Um, okay, so that's super nerdy. Just first off, that's a total, <laughs> you know, thing that the University of Dallas would do. But it was kind of awesome because, okay, so they're all reading something. It's something that's interesting. It's something that is not clear what's going on. There's all kinds of nuances. And well, what does this word mean? What does he mean by that? So they're all participating in something together. They also have a drink with them, something that's tasty, something they can all enjoy together. They can see maybe who makes it the best. So there's some kind of societal aspect involved. Uh, so that's what I would say for college kids. Something that is edifying, right? It's not a slosh fest. 
but you're you're actually engaging in something something that's meaningful and like father said it's timeless and eternal uh in my case now that i'm an old married man uh i really enjoy a series that i read when i was a kid so over the winter i think i may mention this over the winter i decided you know what i'm going to keep this hard working train going i'm going to pick something that is super edifying i love russian literature i read crime and punishment it was great let's go with anna karenina and so, by the way, I was in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the winter. So it's just like a little bit cold and depressing. And so I said, you know what? I would love to be the kind of guy who can pull this off. But I'm kind of just kidding myself. This is not the right time to be reading this. And so I bought the book for like 30 bucks, but I put it on the shelf. I'm, I'm not ready to read it right now. And I went and bought a series that I read when I was a kid. And it is awesome. I am pouring through it. I've been reading it for the last couple of weeks. I came home from work one day and I just read like a hundred pages straight, just kept going, kept going. And the, the third book in the series came in the mail the other day. And before, you know, dinner was even ready, I was already 50 pages in. And it was awesome to just be sitting there lost in this book and I'm enjoying the characters. And, you know, every once in a while in kind of your, your consciousness of reading, you kind of fade in and out. And I thought, this is really great that I'm really enjoying something this much. I don't have to be anywhere. I'm kind of in touch with that energy that I had when I was a kid, right? You just do everything and it's awesome. Um, it was really great to, uh, to be present to that once again. Um, so yeah, I guess for me, what does leisure look like? It looks like reading a good book. Also prayer obviously is, is restorative. It puts us back in touch with God and in the most direct way. Um, the best image uh, I can't say quite yet because Peeper leaves it for uh, for the fifth section. So, uh, spoiler alert, it's the mass. <laughs> right, right. Wow. Yeah, but what about uh, even leisure within work? You know, just finding that like timelessness that he's talking about, finding, um, yeah, that idea of being conscious that God is present to us. Um, is that possible, would you say, in the midst of work at times? Or, you know, I think of something somebody does maybe a little more for leisure time. Uh, or even just at the office. What are your thoughts on that? Being a priest, I'm sure this is especially relevant. Everybody wants to ask you everything and you're walking around everywhere. Can you hear my confession? And you just came from hearing somebody else's confession. It's like, please, can I get a break? <laughs> Day off can't come soon enough. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the most important part of this whole thing. Great, if I have time off, I can find a way to enjoy myself. But, but what about when I don't have time off? When I have to be at work and I have to be there from nine to five, what can I do? Again, I think the answer is not formulaic. Uh, you can't give an equation for how to do that best. The, the simplest answer, and I think the most truthful, but unfortunately the most ambiguous, is you have to have a movement of your will uh, to not be bogged down by the work that you have. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of vague. You have a moment when you're frustrated about something and you can feel the anger rising or the blood is boiling. Somebody just said something and you thought that is not the right way to handle this project. I know it. I've seen this a thousand times. There's a movement that comes within you where you decide, all right, let's say that. Maybe I'll say something in a few minutes if it's appropriate, but maybe this isn't the right time to say anything. There's a movement that comes with that within you. I think there's a similar movement when it comes to work. Uh, I am going to do the best with this that I can. 
I understand that some of it is out of my control, so I don't want to overinvest myself. But at the same time, I do want to give it my best effort, knowing that with my best effort, I will be fulfilled, knowing that God wants to use my efforts for some good. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm a high school teacher, and there's a lot of times where I think this lesson is just not getting through, right? Some people are chatty. This kid's doodling, right? He's doing a whole stick figure war scene and he's got, you know, he's been working on it for three weeks or something. Um, that can be discouraging. But at the end of the day, again, there's going to be some phrase that they hold on to. There's some idea, maybe it's offhand, maybe it's directly related to the stuff that somebody keeps with them and really thinks about when they go home. So I think, number one, having an awareness that your work has meaning, right? Hopefully you're doing something meaningful. <laughs> if not, maybe find a better job. Uh, that your work is meaningful, that there's something about it that is fitting for you, um, not just in terms of your abilities, but in terms of what it has to offer you. Also a movement to not let it creep up on you, to not let it become overwhelming, and to know too, I need a break now, or I'm not going to have a break in two hours. How am I going to order myself interiorly to make sure that I am not uh, a curmudgeon for the next two hours. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm hungry, okay, I gotta be aware about the fact that I'm gonna be hangry. How do I not take that out on somebody else and become grouchy and agitated? You know, every time somebody looks at me, I give them the stink eye because I haven't eaten. Um, they don't deserve that. So you gotta think, how do, I, how do I do that? I think that takes practice. And I think the only real way to do it is to carry God with you. So if you just keep trying to move yourself just time and time again, like, like waves coming out of some kind of a node, uh, you're going to have a pretty tough time. However, if you get prayer in the morning and you talk to God and you address those things that are going on, all right, God, today is the big meeting or all right, God, I don't want to deal with people today. I'm feeling especially selfish. Help me to not be selfish. Right? Coming face to face with that sort of, powering up or uh, to use a mixed metaphor, drinking in light so that when you go out for the rest of the day, you're not entirely gloomy. Something like that has to happen. And if that's vague and ambiguous, it, <laughs> I'm sorry, because <laughs> I, I wish I could put it a bit more specifically, but I think it's something that when you're doing it, you know it. There's not a chance you mistake it when you're actually doing it. It's living an attentive life, a life that is intentional, where you know what you're doing, you're attentive to how you're feeling and to what you're doing. You're, uh, you're not doing things impulsively, you're not doing them mindlessly, but you're, you're putting your heart into your work. So I, I got an example from my own life the other day. It was really cold outside and I was walking probably to the Newman Center and I hate the cold. I love just like warmth and the sun and everything. But this book I'm reading about surrendering to divine providence is kind of along these same lines of, okay, if I truly believe that God created the world and he created this day, then he decided that it was good that this day is cold. And so I should actually rejoice in the fact that it's cold, even though it's bringing a little suffering in my life right now. Is that kind of on the same wavelength of leisure in that it's a disposition of the soul that whatever God brings, even if your work doesn't seem very meaningful, that you can still rejoice in, in that God created it and that it is today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to I be very careful about answering that because 
what we don't want to do is to uh, affirm struggle itself. Again, back to that discursive, it takes effort. What I don't want to do is say, you know what? God decided that today would be miserable. And I'm, I'm going to decide that I like that be, because God, um, that doesn't make much sense. That's not going to convince anybody. The reason we should like it is because it is that way and God wants it that way. Not because it's bad, not because it's hacking me off and, right? It'd be really strange to look at everything in a kind of aggressive way. Yes, another opportunity for me to give up my will. Um, it's not the giving up that's the highlight. It's the fact that you're getting God when you do that, right? You're being present to God, imitating him on the cross when that happens. So it's within the struggle, but it's not the struggle. The struggle is actually a tool. So, uh, so yes and no, the, the, mm. classic, <laughs> the classic answer, yes and no. That's a good answer though. But yeah, it's, it's something like that kind of Franciscan awareness of God is everywhere. God is in all things. God is eternally present. It's something like that that we have to recall and keep in touch with. Mm. Yeah. So I guess the, the simplest way to put it would be that when we have leisure, we can look around at the world and do as God does and affirm it is very good. It is good. And again, too, it's also important to, um, going back to Father's question, it, it's good to recall that leisure is not the same thing as a break. When you take a break, you're away from work, but your break is for work. You're not taking a break just for the sake of the break. You're doing it because you need to get away from work so that you can go right back in in just a little bit. So leisure, we want to say, is not some kind of a spiritual espresso. Like, all right, it's the beginning of the day. Here we go. Hustle mentality. I'm going to juice myself up with God. That way I don't utterly crash. But when I do crash, hopefully it's at the end of the day. And then I'll just do the same thing tomorrow. I'll gas myself up with God prayer. Or, or maybe, maybe I'll go to mass too and, and really get more energy because like that has more points than personal prayer or rosary. It, it, not quite like that. It's not in uh, existential pick-me-up to restore some sense of sanity so that you don't lose your mind, right? That's again, thinking of it in terms of the bad or the dark or the, the useful. It's not used to combat work. Leisure is a good in itself. Pieper says this, he says that no one who looks to leisure simply to restore his working powers will ever discover the fruit of leisure. So if you're just turning to leisure to uh, get you back to work, you're not going to find what leisure is. It's something a lot different than that. Once you harness leisure for work and you subordinate leisure to work, you've zapped all the power that there is within leisure. Leisure is not subordinated to work. It's not even in the same sphere as work. Leisure is a, a condition for living a life that is conscious of God who is in the world. It comes before anything else. Leisure is what enables us to see the world as created and as good and not simply a jumble of parts. Yeah, that's great. I think such a good reminder for all of us, you know, in the midst of busyness, in the midst of work, just to, to remember, um, yeah, why, well, of course, that we're created, that we are good, 
but then like what is the purpose of everything i'm doing today you know it's good to just have that time to step back um to remember like yeah what is the ultimate purpose of this am i just like trying to put my head down and power through everything but maybe to step back and think like okay is this really where i want to be for the rest of my life powering through these things uh or even just today you know if it's like i got to study the next two hours um yeah what is the purpose of this is this getting me ultimately where i want to go uh and how can i find the goodness in that where is god in all this it's and then being not afraid to change at times too right like okay maybe this is actually uh maybe i should think about do i really want to do this long term or even just for today or yeah where is the where is the goodness in this and yeah is it worth it yeah. i think that the, the good is the right the right way to think about it it's something that we uh something that we desire. Uh, Aquinas says that tr uh, goodness is truth with the aspect of desirability. Um, so there's something about it that I just want it. And I can't quite explain it, but there's something about it that's, that's deeply satisfying. It's not just that I want it. It's that there's something eternal, something indescribable and almost indefinable about it that sort of compels me to pursue it. So it's more... It's more on the objective side than it is the subjective side. Right? If you've been working for two hours, uh, a cheeseburger might sound really good, but uh, maybe that's not good for you right then. So I think thinking in terms of the good is really important because the good provides us a roadmap for where we're going, but right? I have to do certain things to obtain it or it's good for something else. And maybe it's good for the highest good. Education is, is good in terms of knowing God who is the highest good. And so the other thing too is that goods can be useful, right? It, it's not good in the sense of like an idol and so it's untouchable. Um, the good and the useful need not be in conflict except when our use makes it not good anymore. Wow. Well, I kind of love there. There was a moment, Peter, when you were explaining this episode, you were doing your laundry and you were like talking to yourself. You're like, wow, Peter. And then you said something to yourself. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Like even what father was saying about thinking to yourself when you're doing your work, what's my purpose of doing this? I think that's one thing we can take away from this episode is just starting to have those conversations with ourselves. Use our intellectus a little bit, sit back <laughs> and start to think about what we're doing. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you both for having me again. I, uh, I look forward to the next episode addressing the final sections of Peeper, finally getting his answer for what does a leisurely life truly look like. And then he also, uh, he's also got some interesting economic comments uh, about what a, what a leisurely society ought to look like. So we'll get into all that. Sweet. Well, thanks again, Peter. This has been awesome. And we will see you next week, I guess. Yeah, I'm looking forward yeah. to it. Yeah. Thank to you, it. Father. Thank you, Johnny. Thanks yeah, a lot. Thank you, Peter. Should we close in a prayer? Yeah, let's do it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for creating us and help us to continually understand that we indeed are good and called to live uh, the good life. Uh, please just help us to be aware of those moments. Um, yeah, just to be aware of your presence, to be aware of what is good and where we're called to uh, just understand you, Lord, and understand that uh, timelessness before us and to know your wisdom. Thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing upon all those tuning in. And we pray together, all glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right.
Sheepdogs out. Just do it! Listen!